0: Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. A podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices' most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, president and founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. Well, first of all, let me say this: It is nice to have a friend on the line every, you know, every now and then. Having somebody that you really like is good. Obviously, we want to, um, you know, shed some some light on the um, issues, barriers, and concerns that uh, the community should should be aware of it relates to um, living with HIV/AIDS, and then the work that you're doing. partnership with communities as well as your state associations your organization and even national organizations um, to really heighten awareness and improve um, outcomes is what we want to talk about so is there anything in particular that you think is like really important given today's environment right because you know the topic uh, has been around for some time
2: yeah i mean i think the the piece of it that's most resonating with medical systems that I've experienced is that in HIV, they finally developed a validated survey tool for measuring stigma. So that when you walk into a facility where you may have, uh, you know, people really rooted in data, you know, really thinking about uh, the provider level where physicians, practitioners, nurses, clinicians are really focused on you know, why should we do this? Uh, We hear it's a good idea, but now we actually have tools that will illuminate for you where you should actually do your work. So it's not just something that we think is good, but something that we can actually show is happening and something that we can actually drill down on and provide interventions to so that it's not just this sort of squishy Uh, topic that some people think is really soft, we've turned it into hard science. So I I think asking questions about how we measure stigma uh, is really interesting because the woman who developed the tool did something really clever with it uh, that changed the way we think about it and has actually convinced the federal government to do something about it.
1: Well, uh, so that that is a great question. And so let's start there. Let's start right there. So when we're talking about, and let me tee this up a little bit, because as you know, in working in your organization and working in communities across the country, Adam, uh, we have had, in particular in the African-American community, um, uh, just some huge barriers in terms of uh, uh, stigma uh, because it's almost Mm -hmm. a double-edged sword, right, in the black community. it's, It's the perceptions of the community in and of itself Around the disease state and and uh, uh, things of that nature, as well as you know stigmas outside, right? In terms of other communities, um, uh, you know, touching uh, healthcare providers, just the entire ecosystem. So let's start there. Tell me a little bit about the work um, that you've done as it relates to stigma, and why is it so important as it relates to uh, patients living with HIV and AIDS.
2: Absolutely. Uh, So I would say, you know, stigma, HIV-related stigma in particular, has been something that I think people with HIV have always felt. And when we brought it to the table and sort of attempted to prioritize it as part of our national HIV-AIDS strategy when we were originally developing this almost 10 years ago at this point, the federal government really pushed back on us. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, we understand that This is a priority for you. However, medical systems turn on data, and we actually don't have data that show that this is a barrier to care. Uh, And we, I think what I really like about the stigma work in the HIV community is that we took that as a challenge. Uh, And as people with HIV, we are used to challenges. It's sort of part of our existence. And we went about trying to figure out how do we quantify our experience and usually quantification of a person's narrative is a really difficult thing to do. You can't put a number to how I feel. And yet uh, we had a researcher by the woman, uh, a woman by the name of Dr. Laura Nyblad, who was focused very much on the, the role of HIV related stigma and discrimination, particularly in women and girls, as it manifested globally. And she attempted to try and figure out whether stigmatization had variation inside of it. Was it was it different when you went to, to different countries? Did people experience it in different ways? Were people stigmatizing in different manners? And what Dr. Nyblad did with her partners was <clears throat> really look at the literature, look at all of the disparate research, and came to the conclusion that it actually wasn't that different, that we were pretty much awful to people in the same way, uh, no matter where you went. Hmm. And in their attempt to define this problem, she recognized that we lacked a measurement tool and that she, being a researcher herself, uh, very much rooted in data and methodology, uh, saw that there was an opportunity here to try and measure stigma inside clinical and community settings. So they attempted to measure it and they asked people questions uh, and the questions were things I think anybody would think of, you know, do you stigmatize your patients? And I think most people uh, who answered those questions responded in a way that's quite expected. They said, no, we don't do this. So her innovation in the end of the people sort of working in HIV related stigma was to ask other people about their observations inside organizations and clinics. So instead of asking a provider, have you stigmatized someone? They sort of flipped the question and asked, have you ever seen someone stigmatized inside your environment? And when they flipped that question, suddenly the data set changed radically. And what they saw were many people who had observed stigmatization inside their environments. And part of the explanation for this, which I think really speaks a lot about communities is that people who are stigmatized don't always know that that's happening to them. Uh, We think that our healthcare systems are supposed to serve us in an equitable manner. We read non-discrimination policies on the walls. We are consented into non-discriminatory environments. And yet There are implicit bias that take place, that we know that people spend more time with people that look like them. Uh, And we also know that providers are really quite unaware that this was happening. And yet when we asked, do you see this in your environment, people said yes. And so I think their attempt to measure it in this way really shined a flashlight on something that patients were quite aware of all the time, especially patient advocates who are, I think a little bit more savvy in looking at the data and understanding that disparities are the result of something. Uh, And so when they measured us, they began to see that there were some pretty concerning levels of stigmatization, uh, not only specific to HIV, but she and her partners asked in their questionnaire about subpopulations, or I think a better way to refer to it, are communities of people. Uh, and specifically asked about uh, marginalized communities such as injection drug users or commercial sex workers uh, or individuals who identify as gay or bisexual. And when they saw this globally, they actually began to see that inside our clinics and our organizations, no matter how well-meaning they were, that there was an incredible level of stigmatization, which sort of pulled back the curtain on the problem and then allowed us to have what I think is a more honest conversation about what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, I love what I just heard from you because I, I, I also um, did some research in this space and about five years ago, I remember doing um, interviews with uh, CEOs of hospitals across the country and asking them a question with regards to uh, disparities uh, in in safety and quality in the healthcare system, and uh, across the board um, from those individuals that come from. Uh, non marginalized, or come, uh, you know, they uh, come from backgrounds of um, uh, races that have not been historically discriminated against. Uh, unanimously, those individuals um, seem to have thought that the healthcare system does not discriminate, that implicit uh, bias um, can exist, but that it typically does not exist in the way that it alters care processes and patterns, um, which was quite the converse from individuals, healthcare leaders that were from historically uh, disenfranchised communities. So from my African American participants, from participants, you know, that were um, of other races and ethnicities that they understood um, that there was a clear connection uh, uh, between the way in which people are perceived and the way care is delivered. And what was really profound about about um, doing these interviews, Adam, was that I heard from them, you know, they seem to have thought that because we've moved towards standardized care, right, and processes Mm -hmm. in our health systems, that those standardized care, it didn't matter who you were, right? If you were, uh, if you were um, uh, someone living with HIV/AIDS, if you were, um, I'll just say, you know, uh, uh, someone who uh, came from another marginalized co- community, that they didn't seem to think that any of that impacted the delivery of care, and it was really an eye opener for me. Uh, but as an African American woman, I think that you know, people from marginalized Communities, and I'm sure you can attest to, we just have this sense of resilience, you know, to kind of keep pressing. And I think to some degree, we almost, um, uh, I don't want to say become vulnerable to it, but it's almost you know, it becomes almost an accepted norm, right? Mm-hmm. That you know, you know, that these things are happening in the system, although the people, right, that are doing it or that the people that have control over don't necessarily have that same amount of awareness. I'm, I'm just curious to know, like, once this came out and the data, you know, was showing something very brent, you know, what was, what was the next action step? What was the, what was the reaction? Because it's always, you know, that pivotal moment when it's like, oh no, there's something else here. And when that, you know, self-actualization occurs, I think it does open up, you know, room for, uh, you know, huge improvements. So what type of transformation occurred after that uh, uh, data set was exposed?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think you hit it right on the head there, which is that, you know, power and privilege sort of blind you in many ways to the impact of your system. And people, once we sort of had pulled back that curtain and they were sort of faced with the data, then I think the question become, uh, what are the root causes? Why is this happening? And it really forced systems and people who were sort of moving the, the chess pieces on the board to ask uh, the big question, which is why. And I think people uh, from marginalized communities are pretty aware of the why, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when you look at communities of color, when you have a country that is built on systemic racism, the why is really obvious. Mm-hmm. But when people are not sort of burdened by that system. They don't understand it. They want to know why did this happen? And Dr. Nyblad and her partners, they they dug into that. And what they found globally uh, was that one, there was a fear in HIV around how HIV was transmitted and that it was actually uh, comparable to the fear people felt around diseases like Ebola. Uh, and mm. second, they found that it really related to this karma effect, they called it, which was a belief that good things happen to good people and therefore bad things happen to bad people. And so they attempted to to go in and say, how do we disrupt those two belief systems? Uh, And I think globally that was, you know, really sort of the target. But when you got into the United States, it was actually a little bit more nuanced, Inside our country and our systems of care, I think, like you were saying, there is a belief that, you know, we've been talking about health equity for decades at this point. Mm -hmm. And people firmly believe, particularly clinicians, that they are proponents of health equity. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been doing is trying to show individuals that clinics are reflections of their communities, that if I can stand inside of my clinic And I can actively acknowledge and be honest about the fact that the community around my clinic or organization has a problem with race or they have a problem with gender or they have a problem with sexual orientation that we have to understand and accept that the clinic is likely a reflection of that and that if we are honest about who we are and the influences of society around us that our clinics must have the same problem. And so it didn't, you don't want to get too intellectual about it because at the end of the day, when you challenge people on their belief systems, you almost end up in a fight that you're never going to win. But what we did end up talking to people about, and I think this was a transformational moment was I am going to allow you to believe whatever you want to believe. That is your right in this country. That is your right as a human being. However, we have sort of created a social contract where what is not okay is that you behave in this way. So you may hold these beliefs, but you may not have your behavior informed by those beliefs inside our environments. But what we found is that they created codes of conduct, and that was supposedly the check on individuals. And yet every time we went into organizations and we would ask a question like, how many people have been reprimanded when you identified that they had stigmatized a patient? What we saw was that there was really no accountability on the back end because everyone was terrified to have to fire the individual uh, that was at the top of the system. And usually it was those individuals. It was always... The person who was most valued they had published the most documents, they were the most respected in the field. Mm. And yet, uh, this is a quotation I have hanging in my office. the The culture of any organization is determined by the worst behavior we are willing to tolerate. And if you are able to tolerate that behavior at the top, then you should expect to see it all through the entire system. Although as we move to a team-based environment, where we sort of flattened that hierarchy, I think people were held more accountable and people felt more empowered to speak up about what they saw. I also think that the, the conversations we have in this country about power and privilege have really brought us to the place where we can have a more honest dialogue about what we see without people being afraid of retribution. Uh, although I think if you <clears throat> reach into you know, some of the pockets of our country, particularly when you get into the, the southern states, there's still a real fear that if you speak up, you're going to mm-hmm. be targeted. Uh, and yet those are the places that still experience the greatest stigmatization and marginalization. Although mm-hmm. having moved into New England, I will tell you in the Northeast, I see just as much as I saw when I was doing my work beneath the Mason-Dixon line. But I think uh, what we can it say now is that Most clinicians that I've engaged are unaware of what they were doing. And what I have found is that they're quite open to learning, but we have to approach them, I think, more with a call-in culture versus a call-out culture, uh, where we engage them in dialogue. Like, talk to me about why you think this about your patient. Talk to me about why you chose not to provide this person living with HIV medication, uh, and what comes out are their beliefs. And when you can highlight the the sort of disparity between what they believe and what is actually the guideline, most clinicians will come on the journey with you. They, they will join you. But at the end of the day, what we found is that it's about behavior. It is about how we behave in our systems, how we interact with people. And the second piece of it that I think was really critical to understanding <clears throat> was that Most of our cultural competency models to date have been based on this categorical approach to communities that we will give you a lecture for one hour uh, about a community. You know, you'll get a one hour lecture on African-Americans, women's experience in HIV. And then after that lecture, clinicians were walking away believing that they had received enough information to walk competently in a culture that most people have walked their whole lives in. And to think that one hour of education is going to make you an expert in a person's culture, I think, was always a really arrogant standpoint to have. So instead, in the capacity building realm, what we've begun to focus more on is I don't really need to give you a one hour lecture on someone that's different than you. What I should be doing is focusing on skills building, on how you have intercultural communication with all people that are different than you. And this does more than transform the healthcare system. I think it does something more fundamental in our country, which is transform our ability as people with power and privilege. And as a white man, cisgendered male, I walk with an incredible amount of power and privilege. And what this has taught me is that we have to willingly walk into spaces different than us, we have to be humble enough to be open. That we could be wrong. We have to not be offended that when people invite us to better language or a better understanding of another community, and we have to approach it with, I think, what I aspire to be, which is curious about other people. Tell me about your experience. Tell me about what it was like for you. And when people gather and sort of adopt those kinds of stances in their world, uh, I think it makes perspective taking much more effective. I think it makes medical history taking much more effective. And at the end of the day, uh, when we look at something like shared decision-making, if I've authentically tried to understand your experience and listened in a way that was not trying to assert my authority, but instead trying to understand the person sitting in front of me, we've transformed a relationship. And at the end of the day, healthcare is about relationships. So what I've seen mostly happen here is transformation, not at the system level, but really at the patient provider level, which I think is more meaningful. And at the end of the day, as a patient, when I feel respected, when I feel like someone is truly concerned about the world I walk in and about the way I approach it, I am more likely to tell you what's going on. And that's the hook for providers. If they want to diagnose me, Mm Find out who I
1: am. Yeah, that's huge. I love that. Let me let me say this about you, Adam. First of all, I think you are an incredible human being. From the first day that I met you up until present, I have certainly adored. Um, our relationship and uh, for for a number of reasons but first and foremost you are just a profound thinker and so I truly enjoy uh, you know being in conversation with you and then the second thing is is uh, your statement with regards to cultural competency uh, is is also duly noted I want to go on record to say see I'd never bought into that concept right or that construct because to me um, to your point you can only make me more sensitive to the issues of particular cultures by training me and giving me more information on the Asian community more information on uh, you know the uh, my Latino sisters and brothers but at the end of the day there is no way that I could ever become competent and I'll say this you know I you know and I joke about it all the time when people talk to me about culture comedy I say I still I'm still figuring out what it is to be about to be black in america and i'm a black woman you know (laughs) so so you know so to say that you know uh someone is proficient uh and cultural uh culturally competent in being african-american and i am american i'm still trying to figure this out you know Mm -hmm. um is is saying a lot desiree i want to uh you know i know you probably have a question i have no 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 i
3: have um a, a comment and a question but I'll say, Adam, what you what you guys are doing resonates with me because I am from the deep south, Louisiana, and unfortunately did lose a family member to HIV and AIDS. And there is a huge, let's start with the stigma in the African-American community. And so this particular family member hid his disease because of fear of the stigma in the African-American community, went outside of his community to receive treatment and was completely devalued and stigmatized. Thus, retreated, did not seek treatment and died.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. People now are living with HIV and AIDS very long and um, productive lives. He lost his battle Mm -hmm. because he didn't feel welcome by the system. And there was no supports there for them. So, what you say resonates with me, and all around cultural competency, we have a lot of work to do in this space. And so, you know, if you had one nugget of advice, how could other healthcare organizations, systems, patient advocacy groups listening to this podcast, what would be the one thing to get started in these barriers down and stigma? What would that advice to them be?
2: So I think my, my singular advice would be to not shy away from critical conversations. Uh, I think right now, politically in this country, we have lost our ability to speak about the things that really matter. Uh, we are afraid to offend people. We are afraid to speak about the parts of our culture that don't raise us all up. And at the end of the day, when someone has to leave their community to get care, What that says to me is that they are going to get care that is less competent because when you understand where people come from, when you understand the nuances of their life and the pressures that they are faced with, uh, that happens at the local level, right? We learn who we are in our backyards, and yet when we are forced to step out of our space, the, the safety and stability of the community we know, then we are put at the mercy of another community and they Mm. may or may not know what we need. And so people are terrified to say to communities that you could be better at this thing. I think it's particularly true in marginalized communities because we face such pressure from the dominant culture that we see the enemy as them. And yet what I see uh, in oppression is that oppression is contagious. And when we are oppressed, there is a tendency to oppress others, and we use the tools of the people that oppress us against the people in our own community. And if we could focus on what's in our backyard, and we could say that I'm going to take care of the world around me, I may not be able to change the rest of the world. That is outside of my sphere of influence. That is outside what I can handle. But what I can handle is what is right in front of me. That when you see someone in the grocery store line and they say something stigmatizing when you're in church and you hear something that comes out that makes you cringe i think our communities are stronger when we build those bedrocks and those foundations that support all of us does it mean that we run around calling people names does it mean that we tell people they're awful i i don't think that's actually helpful but what i think we can do is stick to our values. And if we say we value the full expression of humanity, then I think that means black, brown, gay, straight, cisgender, transgender, that's a full expression of a person. Uh, And if we can learn to value that, then I let other people handle their stuff and I let them handle their communities. But what I wanna be able to say is that in my space and in the spaces around me, uh, people are valued. And I think that it starts at home. We are for too long trying to require that our national leaders give us an example that they are not giving us. And so instead, I say focus locally and look at the places we can affect change. Look at our school boards, look at our local hospitals, look at our local politicians and say, this is something we disagree with. These are outcomes in our community. And if we focus on that, I think it's something that's changeable and it's something that we can celebrate successes in because at the end of the day, will I personally end racism in this country? Absolutely not. But can I end the stigmatization and discrimination of people in my community? I think I can do that. And so people want something that's achievable and I would say focus on that.
1: I um, I wanna say this um, to, to you, Adam, um, and from our CMS work. We um, often talk about requests and offers so I'm going to um, I'm going to make an offer and then I'm going to ask a request of you. Uh, so the work that we do in person family engagement uh, is has been widely accepted across the country. There are a number of different health systems um, that have uh, really begun to uh, make some meaningful um, uh, work. In in partnering with patients um, to transform the health systems and improve quality and safety. Uh, To me, you cannot separate uh, equity or the need um, to produce equity or the need to eliminate health disparities from the concept of person and family engagement. And that's simply because if you're talking about people and if you're talking about creating systems that incorporate their values, beliefs, and preferences, then you got to know who you're talking about, right? And one Mm -hmm. patient isn't equal to all patients. And to your point about the number of marginalized communities, uh, there there are a number of different values and beliefs and perspectives uh, that we just don't consider. And the reason Mm -hmm. why is because, and it's the earlier point that you made, uh, we don't necessarily focus on making a safe environment to talk about these issues. Um, and so the safer we can make the environment, meaning that the environment is open to at least hearing what you talked about uh, in terms of the data um, that you expose, what that data uh, was really helping us to understand, and then just kind of raising an eyebrow to say, "Let's have more of a conversation." Those crucial conversations need to continuously happen in health systems across the country, and they have to do that in partnership with patients. And so, um, my my offer is to. Work more closely with you. You and I are already working together with uh, the National Quality Forum and and, and other things. But I, I want to work more closely uh, uh, with you in this because vulnerable populations. We really have to begin to address the issue of disparities um, and and health equity and using an uh, an approach towards health equity as it relates to these communities. I think. Uh, is something that we need to uh, better incorporate in our work in PFE. And so for us at ATW Health Solutions, we don't separate the two, but I know that there are a number of organizations that don't necessarily understand that. And so my Mm -hmm. request would be is for you to think about how in your work, how you can better inc- incorporate exactly what you're talking about into this more mainstream concept that many organizations have latched onto and that's person and family engagement. Any thoughts about that?
2: Absolutely. I, I First of all, I echo everything you were just saying. We have recently, so this concept was brought to me by a change methodology expert and not to get too wonky about it, but it was special cause variation. Mm -hmm. And it was this idea that when we look at disparities, uh, there are individuals that are unique in our systems. And often that uniqueness can be contained within a community that often isn't captured in a national data set. Mm -hmm. And when we look at things from a national level, what we do is erase the uniqueness of our localities. Mm -hmm. And when we think about health equity, I think a national data set is really valuable, right? I mean, it tells us about the things that are typical nationwide. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see nationally that health disparities exist related to race. They exist related to gender. They exist related to sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And yet when you get local, that gets nuanced and Mm -hmm. it it becomes more complicated. Mm -hmm. And yet when we look at it from a local level, However complex it may be from a national lens, we actually know these people. We see them in our community and there's something we can do about it. So what I sort of challenge health systems to do is absolutely look at the national data set. You know, that will give you a big flashlight on where to look. But what you also have to do is look at your local data set, because we may be talking about people that come from a specific neighborhood. We may be talking about people <laughs> who have demographics that are not easily boxed. Mm-hmm. And I think you can look at things like the opioid crisis going on in this country right now that shows us we miss something really big in our data. And while that lesson has taught us a lot, all you have to do is go back in history and see that we had that example over and over and over again. This was not the first time things like heroin have affected our communities. And yet when you look at a local level, you saw it, it was there. Mm -hmm. And so people I think need to take more action on the data that's around them. And they need to be thinking about the fact that health equity doesn't mean that we all get the same thing. You know, People are going to need more care. I, I always bring up the example of our community of transgender persons, particularly trans women of color. They need more care right now. Mm-hmm. They have more microaggressions, more macroaggressions. Their health care is not culturally competent. It does not meet their needs. And if you look at it nationally, you're talking about less than 1% of the population. And that's a hard argument to make. But when I look in my backyard and I see that these individuals are experiencing Higher rates of homicide, higher rates of microaggressions against them on a daily level, higher rates of incarceration, less likely to receive care. This shines brightly in our backyard. Yeah, and so I think we got to look there. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah, so that's a great uh, that's a great way to uh, begin begin to close. And my goodness, Adam, I could talk to you for probably two hours, and we'd be still <laughs> podcasting. I know we got to go, but. I you know I want to say this what we learned about the misappropriations and things that we did not do during earlier administrations in terms of the crack epidemic, right? Absolutely. This is a this is a huge opportunity for us to get it right because there's so many and, and I love what you said in terms of the communities that didn't show up in the data sets because the addicts that were during the uh, crack co- cocaine uh, e- epidemic did not show up in our hospitalizations data. They showed up in our incarcerations data, right? So they didn't show up as patients. Yeah. They showed up as criminals. And so we and, weren't, we weren't treated. In our mortality. <laughs> you know? They yeah. showed up as dead yeah. people in yeah. our yeah. community. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's a huge um, lesson learned in terms of what we didn't do in um, during that epidemic, uh, and what we need to do, and how to better get a handle on this, uh, you know, because this is this situation is impacting so many people, uh, and it and it's you know a little bit from the uh, crack cocaine uh, epidemic, this one is stretching across age groups. Right. So, you you know, the crack cocaine epidemic was, you know, kind of confined within, you know, particular um, age groups. But this is really, uh, you know, spreading. You got many youth, you know, that are yep. dealing with addictions now. Uh, and so it's a you know, it's a different it's a different uh uh, mindset and a different con- you know, in a level of innovation um, that we're going to need to really approach
2: this. And it hit, and it hit white people. Yeah. I mean, oh well. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's. let's, let's yeah. It yeah, it no, has, yeah. Right? Well, I it, didn't want
1: to say that. I was going to wait for the white earth, boy to say white white it. I mean, you know. yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Soccer moms, soccer <laughs> moms in suburbia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the ER, that's when um the world took notice. Yeah, so what- It but, but shows what the- us
2: how much we could learn about valuing black and brown lives. Oh. Like, if we had done that earlier, yeah. we would not be losing the white lives. Yeah. And so it, it is, it is, I, I, I don't want to say that it's karma, right? I mean, I just right. talked about how bad karma is. But it's one of those things that teaches us about the value of human life. Mm-hmm. If we valued human life from the beginning, mm-hmm. regardless of how we attempted to conceptualize it or categorize it, mm-hmm. we would not be where we are today.
1: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I so enjoy talking to you. I love you, Adam. Um, uh, can, can you do me one favor? Can you, Absolutely. Can you just speak? Spend two minutes sharing your story, please, how you got here. Because, I mean, honestly, I remember the first... I still remember the first time I was standing in a hotel in D.C. And you were speaking. And, you know, I don't... You know, it, it, it takes... A, a lot of situations to pull a, a tear jerk from me. And I was standing in that room. I was like, Oh, I mean, I really connected with you. Can you spend two minutes, please, please, please. And share with our audience, your story, how you got here.
2: I, absolutely. So, you know, I, I, think it really starts with, I was a, a little kid from Appalachia uh, being a kid from West Virginia. I was raised by parents who were social workers Uh, who made a conscious choice to raise us in the country. They wanted us to be from a place that was a little bit more simple, a place that we would be able to appreciate uh, the things around us. And yet they instilled in us a value of education. And so as we were growing up, you know, uh, I wasn't necessarily completely aware I was the gay kid, but I was, aware that I was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So in that marginalization, mostly self stigmatization, uh, I achieved that goal of, you know, studying a lot, kind of keeping my focus on, on achieving and trying to be better than where I was from. And one of the things that sticks with me most was this idea that I had a really thick West Virginia accent. I used to sound just like I was from the country (laughs) and (laughs) I remember people saying, if you talk like that, people are not going to respect you. And I I bought into that. And I thought that that was true in the world. And so when I got to college, I landed in Washington, D.C. I began to see that the world was way bigger than what I thought it was. Uh, But I also really began to come into my own as a young gay man. And yet I realized that the values I was raised with and the culture I was raised in was so radically different uh, than an urban gay culture that I felt like I was in between two worlds. Hmm. And in that space, I began to hang out with people who didn't have my best interest in mind, hmm. uh, who were in conflict with everything I'd been raised with. And yet it was the closest I had to community, the closest thing I had to a sense of who I was. Mm -hmm. And I fell into drugs, uh, particularly methamphetamine. uh, And that habit quickly devolves uh, because it makes you feel like it's all better. Mm -hmm. And as a poor kid from West Virginia, I didn't want to feel like that. I was at a practically Ivy League school, challenged with all the pressures that one feels when, when you're in poverty and the people around you aren't. And to cope with that, uh, the only thing I knew how to do was to feel better. And so I ended up uh, being an injection drug user, uh, which landed me homeless on the streets of D.C., uh, primarily engaged in commercial sex work. And it took me uh, probably about two years living that lifestyle before I recognized that I had become a person in conflict with myself and only when I was able to dig back to the values that I had as a person, was I able to really see uh, this conflict in myself. And yet, just in the moment when I needed the healthcare system more than ever, uh, when I went in to be basically diagnosed with HIV, I was experiencing lots of sort of symptoms of fatigue, rash, headaches. Uh, I was diagnosed with HIV, syphilis, and hepatitis B all at once. And the clinic I went to, They were very compassionate. These were not people that had my, you know, they were not trying to hurt me in any way. And yet they didn't know how to care for me. And so I was engaged uh, by actually the state health department. So it's actually a good government story uh, who said, your care should be better. But what we need to know is how do we make it better? Hmm. Uh, I remember being approached, uh, Desiree, you were there by the guy from GW University who said, We spent millions of dollars trying to reach people like you. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did we miss you? A lot of it was stereotypes. I said there was not a single flyer at Georgetown University talking to me about my risk of HIV. And that was because you assumed that people like me didn't need that kind of support. We didn't need that kind of education. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I landed uh, homeless in D.C. as a kid with a Georgetown degree. Uh, And I think... People's assumptions about who needs what is at the root of a lot of our healthcare problems, and so I've spent the last, I think we're 18 years in now, uh, guaranteeing as to the best of my ability that individuals uh, are not victims of what we think they should be, uh, but instead to try and build a system that allows you to be exactly who you are uh, and to respect and value you uh, for that full expression of yourself uh, and allows you to achieve whatever you want. Uh, HIV was the only thing in my life that ever put limitations on myself. And, and I say that again, you know, not to repeat it, but as a kid with a lot of power and privilege, it was the first time I was told there were things I couldn't do. Hmm. Uh, And that bothered me. And what I became aware of when I was diagnosed with HIV was that many people walk in this world every day who are told they can't do things. And I saw an inequity I saw what was at its core unfair in this culture. And the values I was raised with was that fairness is a virtue. And so I've dedicated my career and I hope to every day further it more and more uh, to bring fairness to people because I think we deserve it. I think our kids deserve it. And I think it's something that as Americans, it's possible, we can do this. Well, I
1: am super proud of you. Um, Like I said earlier, you are an amazing um, individual. I'm grateful to God for your journey. If it weren't for your journey, um, you wouldn't be here doing the incredible work um, that you're doing across the country. Um, I know one of the roles that you serve in is the uh, regional uh, partner director. I think it's the AIDS Education and Training Center at Jefferson Health uh, in, in New Jersey. And I know that you are just often called upon. Uh, by other thought leaders across the country uh, to come in and, and really drive change. And so I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, and if there's anything that we can ever do to continuously support that, then by all means let's let's partner. So thank you. I enjoyed uh, our conversation on today. And so we look forward to uh, having you again. Adam, we're going to do part two. we We're gonna, I'm claiming that. We're going to do part two. We're going to do
3: part yeah. two of this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We
3: need,
1: another, we need another session, Adam.
3: We do.
2: And thank you for all the work that you all do. There, there are not enough voices like yours, and not enough passion out there doing this stuff. So you're, you're helping all of us.
1: Thank you, Adam. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com.